Good afternoon. Happy holidays. Thank you very kindly for coming to Hudson Institute. Uh, my name is Lee Smith. I'm a senior fellow here. Uh, we have a very, uh, very interesting panel. Um, very interesting panel about developments in the region titled The Middle East in Freefall, the Islamic State, the Iranian Access, and the Muslim World in Crisis. And um, both of our guests here, both of my colleagues, Hussein Abu Hussein, um, who's the, uh, the Washington bureau chief for Rai, uh, a Kuwaiti uh, newspaper, also writes in a number of different uh, Arabic language media outlets as well as other Middle Eastern outlets. And, is, uh, and uh, we've worked together at the Weekly Standard, where I'm also a senior editor. Um, and he is just back from, uh, just back from the Gulf, the, uh, uh, some of our, uh, visiting some of our uh, Gulf allies. So he will have, uh, he will have an account of that. Uh, and my colleague, my Hudson colleague, Michael Pregent, uh, a, a dear friend as well. And uh, Michael uh, is a uh, former retired intelligence officer and military officer with over 20 years' experience, with, uh, with extensive, extensive experience in Iraq. Um, and Mike is a fellow here at Hudson as well. And he is just actually back from Iraq where he will, uh, he will relay some of, his, uh, some of his experiences there and, uh, and also relay what people in Iraq are thinking right now with, uh, with Islamic State and with the, uh, with the Iranian access. So, again, thanks very kindly for coming. And uh, I'm going to turn it over to our two guests, who again, who have uh, very interesting accounts. Then after they've made their introductory comments, we'll, uh, we'll come back around and uh, we'll unfold some of the things that they've seen and, um, and some other things to talk about. So again, thank you very kindly. Hussein, if you'd like to start off, that'd be great. Yeah, thanks, Lee. Uh, thank you. Uh, thanks to uh, Hudson Institute and uh, for everyone in this room. Um, I just came back from Saudi Arabia on a Tuesday where <coughs> I spent a week in uh, uh, as you might imagine, uh, Riyadh has become the hub of politics in the region with, with entanglements in, in Yemen and Syria and uh, in Iraq and, uh, and Lebanon. Uh, during the week that I spent there, uh, the Syrian opposition was holding uh, one of the biggest gatherings to come up with a statement uh, 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 to, to take a unified position uh, on what's going on inside Syria. Uh, the Yemenis... The Yemeni uh, government in exile is also living for now in Riyadh, hoping that the Gulf armies will eventually eject the Houthis from the capital Sana'a and re, uh, uh, reinstall uh, the government of Abdurrahman Buhadi Mansour. Uh, and of course, there was the GCC summit uh, with, uh, with the leaders from neighboring Gulf countries. And all of this was happening uh, the same week. And toward the end of the week, Saudi Arabia held its third uh, uh, local elections ever, and this was the first time that women were allowed to run for elections mm. and vote. So, so many things were happening in Saudi Arabia. Uh, my focus was primarily uh, on the GCC summit and, 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 the, uh, and the gathering of the Syrian opposition. Uh, many of the Syrian <coughs> opposition, uh, of course, they've, they've been doing this over the past four years. Uh, I was one of the journalists who participated in the first uh, Syrian opposition gathering ever. It was held in May 2011. That was mm. the first one in, in Antalya in Turkey. And uh, I could uh, uh, compare between the first uh, uh, one and this one. Uh, of course, needless to say, the first one was more hopeful. There was no so much uh, bloodletting as, as, as it's happening now. There were 
uh, not so many regional armies and uh, international air forces uh, 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 doing their runs inside of Syria. Uh, in 2011, all of this was, uh, was based on young people and mainly intellectuals and professors. And now it has become uh, a, a mix of uh, uh, veteran politicians, veteran Syrian politicians in the opposition, and the other half uh, are representatives from uh, the moderate uh, fighting groups inside of Syria. And now uh, I saw that uh, one of the experts, uh, Charles Lister, uh, who's the author of the book uh, Jihad in Syria, he's put out, he's estimated the number of the, uh, of, of, of the representatives, uh, the number of the fighters uh, who, are, who were representative in Riyadh at 65,000 fighters. And, and that to me was a, was a, was a good number, uh, especially given that the uh, American attempt to train uh, moderate Syrian rebels uh, yielded five or six fighters. So uh, to my mind, that was, that was a good opportunity to see these people and talk to these people. Now my first impression about the Riyadh gathering was that whatever these people were trying to put together, of course, with assistance from the diplomats of Saudi Arabia and, and Qatar and Turkey, and sometimes someone from the American embassy would show up. Um, these guys were trying to put a statement, and, and you think that when they put a statement, they're thinking of what Assad and his sponsors, uh, how Assad and his sponsors would look at their statement uh, as a starting port for negotiations. What, what happened instead, whatever the Syrian opposition was trying to put together, they had Washington in mind. And, uh, and, and they, they knew that if they put anything that Washington does not endorse, that's a, that's a deal breaker. So they wouldn't want to, to put something and then, you know, uh, uh, the, uh, the Obama administration would say, no, sorry, we can't, we can't take this. Then, of course, because, you know, everybody else and uh, Russia and Syria are certainly opposed to whatever these, these guys are doing. So my impression this time is that uh, the opposition was trying to negotiate with Washington and not with Russia and Iran. Uh, and, and, they, and the Syrian opposition have a sense that, that them and Washington are not on the same side. They have a sense that they are on one side. Uh, the Saudis and the, the other Gulf diplomats are trying to coach the Syrian opposition on how to deal with America, because America most of the time is trying to, to twist arms to push these guys in the Syrian opposition to concede to Assad and Russia and Iran. And this is very interesting. And that what, what, what I saw was, was really something that's, that somehow was new to me. And, and, and you know we knew inside that uh, gathering of the Syrian opposition that there was uh, direct talk between the Saudi, the senior Saudi officials and uh, senior officials in Washington. We know that uh, Secre Secretary of State John Kerry uh, uh, spoke with uh, <coughs> Foreign Minister Adil Jubeir. He also talked to uh, Deputy Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman mm. several times. So everyone was under the impression that Washington was being let in on whatever was, was happening. And then I remember we were all sitting in the lobby uh, when we saw for the first time uh, uh, John Kerry on TV saying that uh, there are two sticking points coming out of the statement of Riyadh. And everyone was surprised because 
they thought that they were doing this <coughs> together with, with Washington, hmm. and then they felt that they were being bashed publicly instead of, right. uh, instead of hearing, oh, instead instead of yeah. hearing uh, what reservations the United States has uh, uh, on whatever they were doing. Huh. So this just uh, uh, reinforced the idea that the Syrian opposition, when they're, when they're negotiating, they're under the impression that they're negotiating with what Washington would accept. Huh. Can I ask you something quickly before we move on to um, Mike? Were you, uh, were you in Saudi when, um, when Kerry was meeting with Lavrov in Moscow and he said that there is no, that the, uh, the Russian and the U.S. positions are essentially the same and that we're not interested in regime change. Were you in, in Riyadh for this? Well, I, I was actually, uh, during that meeting, I was uh, on board just coming oh, back. Okay. So <laughs> I was in the airbound. Uh, and, and since then, since then, speaking with some of your contacts back there, I mean, what do pe I mean presumably people are not that surprised by that statement. Or, or were they? Uh, well, well, they're not, and uh, and I think now they're they're focused on trying to get the United States as neutral. That's what they said, as neutral as wow. positive. Just you know, stop taking the side of Syria and Iran, and and this and because these guys look back and see that with this administration, this president has had a hard time talking to all of all of America's allies whether it's uh, Bibi Netanyahu of Israel, whether it's the, the uh, King Salman of Saudi Arabia who didn't show up in Washington during Camp David, yeah. whether it's, you name it, whoever ally, and, and then w whether it's uh, uh, Turkey's Recep Tayyip Erdogan who's had you know, uh, uh, some tension after uh, Turkey shot down that uh, uh, Russian fighter jet. So mm. everyone who's an ally, whether in Israel or Turkey or, or the Gulf states, everyone who's an ally of the United States has had a rough patch with uh, the Obama administration or with the president himself. Whereas if, if you're Castro or if, you've, if you're Jawad Zarif or if you're uh, some other guy, you, you have chemistry with this administration. And I think you know, these people are now thinking, okay, now this is, how it's, it's, you know, this is how things are with the Obama administration. I think this was, this was not there in 2011. To, you know, to my mind, this is something that's been developing for some time. And, and as it stands, the, America's allies feel that it's much better to be America's enemy than actually being America's friend. That's very bad news you bring back what? from... <laughs> thank you for saying that's great. Now we have a lot more stuff to come back to. And it's going to be interesting because we'll be able to um, put together you know, the center of stuff between Syria, uh, the Gulf, and then uh, Iraq. And, and Mike will be able to... to uh, to be able to help us dig down a little, a little uh, further there. So, Mike, if you could, uh, yeah. if you could follow up. More, more bad news. Than yeah, great. Thanks, Mike. Forget right. it then. Yeah. So the, the Sunnis of the northern Middle East need a friend. The 20 million Sunnis, whether they be Sunni Arabs or Sunni Kurds in the northern Middle East, need a friend, and they're not seeing one from the West. They view the, the, uh, the West as having a – they're seeing a tilt in the West towards Iran. That bothers them. Uh, the – Sunnis also, I believe, are losing hope after the last year and a half of inaction or, or, or very little action in Iraq and in Syria, uh, the things that have happened. So I went to, I went to the Middle East. I went to Turkey. Um, the night I got in Turkey, uh, the next day the Paris attacks happened. 
Everybody was focused on that. Uh, I went to Cyprus, and Cyprus has a very interesting view of the Middle East because they can see all the chaos around them, and yet they're in a strategic location, a location where a lot of the uh, Iranian supply to Hezbollah goes through and some of the southern ports. But I had an opportunity to talk to college students there from Iraq and, and Syria. And uh, I said, uh, they said, who do you want to talk to? And I said, well, I want to talk to people that hate America. Uh, so the question, first question, who hates the U.S.? Hands went up. Okay, who thinks the U.S. should do more? More hands went up. So I want to know who the unwed military-aged males are in this crowd, and pr pr primarily the Sunni non, uh, unwed military-aged males. So I was able to ask them, so wh what do you think, why do you hate the U.S.? Well, you guys invaded Iraq. Okay, I get it, 2003. But more importantly is you've handed over Iraq to Iran. Uh, you failed to act in 2012 in Syria. You could have done more. And I said, well, what would it take, what would it take for you to go back to your country, especially the Syrians, to, uh, what would it take to be part of a U.S. training effort to go back to your country and both fight ISIS and Assad? And they said just that. The U.S. needs to have a strategy that we just shedded, what, yesterday? To uh, replace Assad. And, of course, we shedded our training program uh, early this, uh, this fall to train Syrians to fight. So they said there's, there's really nothing that could get us to go back unless the U.S. had a defeat Assad strategy and a defeat ISIS strategy and a defeat Jabhat al-Nusra strategy and a defeat Ahram al-Sham strategy because there's, there's all these different players there. The Iraqis, it was much easier. Uh, we want to be back in the Iraqi security forces, and we want to help fight ISIS, but we're concerned that Baghdad's not going to let us be part of Iraq's future. So talking to those college students, I said, okay, let me go talk to some refugees. So I had an opportunity to talk to Syrian refugees. There's 250,000 Syrian refugees in the Kurdish regional government area. In Dahuk, Erbil, uh, that's where the majority of them reside. Uh, had a chance to talk to them about the reasons they left Syria, and countering the, the narrative coming out of the White House that Syrian refugees are leaving Syria because of ISIS. That's not the case. Uh, Syrian refugees are, are exploded. The refugee problem exploded in September after the Iran deal was secured, after Russia and Iran went in to shore up Assad. You started seeing a huge migration out, uh, and the majority of these people leaving were unwed military-aged males leaving the country. We had just abandoned the, uh, the training program. We're no longer going to train uh, Syrians. As you said, we only produced about 60. Uh, if a lot of people don't know, the Syrian training program vetted out anybody capable of fighting ISIS. Uh, any former affiliation with an insurgent group or, or a group, a moderate group that, was, that had ever worked with an insurgent group or an Islamist group, you were disqualified. And what, that, what happened there is you were told you can only, you had to sign a document. You can only fight Assad if you go back into Syria. Or you can well, only, you can fight, only ISIS. fight ISIS. You, you can only fight ISIS, right. you can't fight Assad. And that made no sense to these guys. So they go back in and they say, well, okay, we'll just call in airstrikes on these positions in the U.S. will honor and they'll, they'll hit Syrian uh, positions. We did not. We left them out, hung them out to dry because we couldn't verify the targets because they were indeed calling in U.S. airstrikes on Assad's forces and other, other groups because ISIS to them wasn't really the main Wait, so I'm threat. sorry. So can, yeah. I'm sorry. You can explain. So they, 
they were they were not supposed to be fighting. <coughs> they had to sign sign right. a sign. But a, nonetheless, they were calling an airstrike. Yeah, and that's why we didn't drop any. So they, yeah. Okay. That's so the, the people that were that were vetted out went how back did, to Syria. I'm sorry. How did we know they were Assad positions as well? Based on the location of the airstrikes, okay. it wasn't traditional ISIS-held territory. It was right. always somewhere somewhere else. Very interesting. Um, right. But the people that get vetted out went back and told Assad's intelligence agency, told ISIS, told Jabhat al-Nusra, who actually made it into the program. So the intimidation right. campaign was already there before they even got back against their families. When they got back, they were abducted, or they had to pledge mm -hmm. Baya to ISIS or Daesh. They had to do these things. And it just fell apart. So the Sunni military Ismails that I talked to from Syria said they would want no part of any U.S. training mission whatsoever if, if it didn't mean U.S. forces on the ground, if it didn't mean a defeat Assad strategy. So that's, that's that part. And then I asked to speak to uh, Sunni military Ismails who had been part of the Iraqi security forces, part of the Sons of Iraq, and part of the Awakening. Uh, and there were a lot of them there. So the camp breakdown was basically you had 200 families and you had, you had 8,000 unwed military-aged males from Iraq and Syria in this camp. And I talked to them and said, well, what would it take for you to be part of, of Iraq's future? And everything hinged on getting Baghdad to accept us as part of Iraq's future. Uh, two main drivers for, for uh, the refugee crisis in Iraq is... ISIS and Baghdad's unwillingness to allow Sunnis to resettle in Shia areas because they view them as collaborators or facilitators for ISIS advance to begin with. Uh, like us, Baghdad is willing to take families in, you know, nuclear families, but not willing to take in unwed military age mouths because of, because of that, that uh, label of collaborator. So I came away with the U.S. isn't doing enough. We can't wait 13 more months. Iran's influence is increasing in both uh, Syria and Iraq. And we want the U.S. to do more, but we don't understand why the U.S. isn't. Then I had a very interesting conversation with uh, 12 former Saddam-era generals. I passed their names to the uh, intelligence community. They all checked out. Uh, they showed up in my, at my hotel in Erbil. I only thought I was going to meet with two of them. Twelve guys showed up. Uh, they looked at me and said, why are we meeting with you? And uh, we ended up having a three-hour conversation. They insisted I record. Uh, mm. <laughs> so they basically said, listen, uh, we forgive the 2003 invasion of Iraq. Uh, we want you, if you're going to work with Iran, you can work with us. We want you to help us kill ISIS, but we also want to curb Iranian influence. And I said, well, what does that mean? So, said, well, the, the Iranians are taking over, over the government. They have too much uh, influence over our Shia political parties. And you can see what happened yesterday when, when Secretary Carter went to Baghdad and Prime Minister Abadi turned down uh, our military package of increased air capability with the Apaches and increased special operations capability to be able to help them retake territory from ISIS using our best uh, military equipment and our best personnel. Uh, Abadi turned it down because he was being pressured by mainly by two Shia militias, the Badr Corps, an Iranian-backed mm. Uh, militia led by Hadi al-Amri, who sits in meetings every time one of our senators goes over to meet with Prime Minister Abadi, and uh, Abu Mahdi al-Muhendis from Kitab Hezbollah, a designated terrorist organization uh, that drives around in U.S. M1 tanks and uses weapons that were originally destined for Sunnis and Kurds. 
every time we send a shipment coordinated with Baghdad to go to one of these two groups, Baghdad has a press conference with one of these Shia militia, uh, uh, political parties leading that, saying, look at the arms shipment we just captured from the Americans. They're trying to bypass Baghdad by landing at Baghdad International Airport and going through customs. To, uh, to provide support to the Sunnis and the Kurds directly. Mike, I'm sorry, uh, so why, why did the Shia militias, why did they, what did uh, why did they want the central government? Because they believe uh, the, the central government is being pressured by the U.S. to not allow them to be part of these military operations. Uh, okay. They believe that uh, they were the ones that took back to Crete. They're the ones that saved Baghdad. Therefore, they should get the majority of the credit and they should be empowered and emboldened. And yet they see the U.S. trying to pressure a body to no avail. To, to limit their influence. Uh, they have a lot of influence. And a lot of people conflate the Hashid al-Shabi, the po People's Mobilization Units, with Shia militias. Uh, the Shia militias are also Hashid al-Shabi, but they fall under Kitab Hezbollah and Bada Corps leadership. But what's more important is that they also wear the uniform of the Iraqi army, the federal police, and the counterterrorism service. Uh, how do I know this? Because I spent five years in Baghdad working with these guys and actually identifying sectarian actors within the intelligence and security apparatus. Uh, we took 50 targets to General Petraeus in 2007 and said, these are the top 50 sectarian actors in the Iraqi government. And he said, wow, if we replace all these guys, we'll, we'll have effectively shut down the Iraqi government. So they stayed in place or simply got moved into lateral positions. But they're now in charge of what's going on in Iraq. Uh, those of us in the intelligence community that work this know it. Those of us that are retired and have left the military know it. But more importantly, the Sunnis and the Kurds and the, our Sunni regional allies know it. And they're wondering why the White House continues to obfuscate the role of Iran in Iraq and the role of Shia militias in these offenses. The very Sunnis we need to kill ISIS and stabilize the northern Middle East right. are questioning why we aren't working with them and we're trying to work through Iran to make these things happen. Let me, let me um, ask both of you the same question then. I'm going to ask you, Mike, to answer it first, and then you, Hussein. Um, when, when the Ba'athi generals say, we want you to curtail <coughs> Iranian influence, do they mean Iranian influence, or do they mean Iraqi Shia? What, and, and Hussein, I, again, not necessarily about Iraq, but generally, when the Saudis are talking about Iran, are they talking about are they talking about Iran, or they don't want Baghdad controlled by, by Shia? So what, 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 are they, what do they mean? Mike, if you would start the, off. The Shia militias are because of Iran. Uh, so the one thing that was very striking to me, the one thing that stood out was I, I talked to uh, uh, a major general in the Peshmerga that was on the eastern front lines of Mosul. I visited the front lines, and... Uh, they said, we don't have any mortar position. We don't have any mortar rounds for our mortars. We're running out of rounds for our machine guns. But we're more concerned about Shia militias than we are about ISIS because they carry the Iraqi flag. And that's one of the biggest problems. And the Sunni general said the same thing. He said, we could fight ISIS. It's no problem. But what do we get for it? I mean, they were very honest. We could, we could have killed ISIS the last, last 14 months, but what, did we, what would we have gotten for it? We killed al-Qaeda as part of the Sons of Iraq and the, in the Awakening, and Maliki kicked us all out of the security forces. Maliki targeted us. Maliki led us, left us open to reprisal attacks from Shia militias, Al-Qaeda, the Iraqi security forces, ISIS, and now Shia militias again. 
what do we get for killing ISIS? There's 4,000 ISIS members in Mosul. The Baghdad government, because of Iranian influence, has not let a Sunni force be built yet to do this. They're against the U.S. building a Sunni force, and they're against the Turks building a Sunni force. The Turkish uh, contingent that just went into Iraq, that's in the newspapers, was there to replace an existing Sunni training mission that had been going on for a year that Baghdad knew about. Baghdad had a year to protest it, to complain about it, but they didn't. They, did, they chose to do it now because of this emboldened sense now with the Russian-Iranian intelligence cell and targeting cell in Baghdad, and this new sense that, you know, when the president says, we have a coalition of 60 nations and they only have a coalition of two, meaning Russia and Iran, that's enough. That's really all they need to stay where they're at. Uh, they're not looking at Iraq and Syria the way we would. We go into these countries to try to fix them, fix the whole. They're there to keep the parts that they want. They could care less about the rest. So the, the, the general said, um, you know, we want to defeat ISIS. If you can work with the Iranians, you can work with us. We have teachers, technocrats, politicians. We are the ones that were removed because of debathification and the accountability and justice law, for those of you in the audience that know about that. Um, we want to help kill ISIS, but we want a U.S. commitment to help us build a Sunni force. They were talking about federalism, right? you know, a Sunni area, but they do have designs on the rest of the country, and that's the problem. They see ISIS as the 50-meter target and Iran as a long-term strategic enemy in Iraq. Awesome. Thanks, Michael. Uh, sure. I want to yeah. come, come back to what the, the thing that you ended it on later. Right. We'll swing back around to that. So, uh, yeah, well, uh, two things. Uh, first of all, I think uh, what you're up against is the Iranian idea of uh, what, what constitutes a government and a state and a, and a security force. And mm. I see in this audience many Iran experts who know about this more than me. But... Uh, Iran itself is designed in a way wherein the militia, the Revolutionary Guard, is much stronger than the regular army, where the supreme leader is much stronger than the president. Uh, and I think Iran likes this model and, <coughs> and has exported this model to, uh, to Lebanon, where Hezbollah is much stronger than Lebanese government. It has exported this to Iraq, where these Shia militia are much stronger than the mm. uh, Prime Minister Abadi and before him, Prime Minister Maliki. So they copy this, and, and I think what's going on inside of Syria, the, the militias oh. that are uh, under Iranian command in Syria are, are also much stronger than Assad as we speak. So mm -hmm. this model you can see copied in all these nations, and of course uh, the, the militias <coughs> that Michael mentioned are, uh, have so much more influence than uh, uh, Abadi, the prime minister, who's much <coughs> weaker and who's supposed to be America's ally. So, so this, is, this is one thing. Now, uh, on the other hand, the, where, where America comes in is that we, or the, the Washington has not explained what the criteria in dealing with these militias versus states. So uh, ISIS is terrorist. It's on the foreign terrorist organization list of the State Department. We, we understand that. And Nusra too. But what's with Hezbollah? Hezbollah is on right. FTO list, and, uh, and, and we know that there's some sort of indirect coordination between the United States and Hezbollah in places like Lebanon through the Lebanese intelligence right. 
or uh, the, the, the military intelligence and, and other uh, organizations or channels. Right. So uh, America does not come across as someone who's dealing with this whole thing, militia versus state, in a fair manner. You know, the, the spokesperson of this Hashd uh, al-Shabi, uh, Mr. Asadi, who's also a, a member of Iraqi parliament, was here in Detroit a few months ago. He was recruiting fighters, Shia fighters, to go fight uh, uh, against the Sunnis. From Detroit. From Detroit, yes, De yes, yes. Just you, you, just, you can Google him right. and, and Mr. Asadi Detroit, and, and he was here, he was recruiting. And this guy belongs to a militia that helped uh, kill at least 1,000 of the 4,000 American troops that we lost in Iraq. And this guy was here in Detroit. And at the what, same I'm sorry, what group is, is it again? What's is, the... It, um, um, uh, his, uh, his specific group Asa is... Asa al -Hawk? He, uh, no, I, I don't think he's, he's not with Asa. He's, he's something that's uh, anyway, it's something that's Islamic. Okay. But uh, but anyway, because all of these all of these militias come together under one big umbrella, and he's the spokesperson of, of the whole thing. Okay. So the, this person was here, and at the same time, when when the Saudis threw their weight behind separating the really uh, radical terrorists like ISIS and Nusra from the more moderate, still Islamist. Right. Uh, groups like Ahrar al-Sham or Jaysh al-Islam and bring these guys to Riyadh and force these guys to endorse a statement last week saying we support a democratic Syria, we support yeah. transition like the United States wants it. And, right. and still, we, still Secretary Kerry went out and he said we have two sticking points and these two sticking points were Ahrar al-Sham and Jaysh al-Islam. That's what those these two, two sticking militias, points. Yes, right. these two militias. So our allies and friends in the region do not understand right. What's the criteria of the United States? Why? How come Mr. Asadi gets to come here and recruit, and and we wouldn't let these two uh, organizations who are not on the uh, on the FTO list, by the right. way? So if, if they were, it's it's justified, but they're not. So we we should either put them on FTO and say, listen, you know, we can't deal with these guys, so right. you can't deal with these guys. But they're not, and we don't like them. We want to keep them out, and at the same time, we don't announce them terrorists. So so this is this is a complicated thing. And and by the way, the U.S. allies in the region, especially the Gulf, they follow the lead of the United States. So as we speak, Saudi Arabia just opened its first embassy in Iraq in 25 mm. years. They sent a resident ambassador, mm. they sent a diplomatic mission, and they sent uh, guards and whatnot. And, and they're doing this because the United States has instructed them that our guy in Iraq is Abadi. But Abadi is so much our guy that he wouldn't even accept uh, 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 Apache helicopters fighting uh, on his side. Mm. So this is this is really uh, this is really confusing. The, the U.S. policy in dealing with which militias are terrorists, which militias are okay to deal with, is confusing. It's confusing for the militias. It's confusing for the Sunni tribes in Iraq mm. who who are not joining the fight because they're confused. It's confusing for allies and capitals like Riyadh and. And, and, uh, and the UAE and, and Doha and other capitals who are trying to put in some efforts to help the United States uh, deal with this. What do they think the, if they don't know, and it comes back to the question I asked before, uh, when, as Mike was talking about the generals saying that they're, they're talking about Iranian influence, and I said, how do we distinguish between when, when Ba'athis say Iranian influence, when do they mean Iran, when do they mean just Shia? And I guess they would say the same thing, you know, with a lot of uh, with a lot of our allies in the Gulf. Are they really talking about Iran? Are they talking about Shia? What's their concern? 
but it seems that the answer you're giving, what you're leading to is saying, yeah, actually, how do we explain this otherwise? How is the United States not, how is the administration not tilting toward Iran if there's a guy here who's recruiting in Detroit, but when the Saudis bring these different groups in, they, uh, they slap them on the wrist for that? I would imagine that's what people are thinking. I would imagine that's how it looks. Yes, it, it, it does, exactly. And, and the point is, there's no uh, clear policy as, as to who of these guys are friends and who's allies. At, as it stands, there's no nuanced uh, uh, understand, or there's no nuanced differentiation between the Shia, yeah, because, you know, I'm sure we have Shia who are radical and we have Shia who are just fine and, and establishment people who are willing to build a state and, and defend the state in Iraq and Lebanon and other places. <coughs> and the same thing applies to the Sunnis. And what's happening now is that uh, our position is that Shia good, Sunni not so much. But we have to get along because Saudi Arabia has oil. So, and, and this is how they perceive That's themselves. How, huh. this, is how, this is how they look at things. So we have to come out and say, okay, ISIS and Nusra are different from Jaysh al-Islam and Ahrar al-Sham. Hmm. And, and you know, we are nuanced enough to understand you know, the difference between... By, by the way, uh, Iran, is, is, because the, the Iranian uh, propaganda as we speak is not only attacking Saudi Arabia or Wahhabism, it's also attacking Turkey. And it becomes so absurd because mm. on social media, you see uh, Iranians mm. accusing Turkey of being Wahhabi, which is, which is total nonsense. Right. So, so things are really becoming, the, the, the lines are being blurred, and the coalitions are shaping up into one, two grand coalitions with two extremes, either ISIS for all Sunnis, or Hezbollah or someone else for all Shia, and you have other players coming from, from outside, like Putin or the United States. Um, a question for you both. Um, what is the most important thing, coming back from the region for you both, what's the people talking to you, what's the most important thing they say is happening in the region now? They say, the problem is, is either uh, the United States is not here, or they say ISIS, <clears throat> or they say Iran, or they say... Uh, New possible nuclear proliferation. Mike, what's the number one thing on people's minds? Uh, U.S. disengagement from the Middle East is, is the biggest concern. Um, the president came in with a policy to end wars. This disengagement strategy, strategy is actually prolonging wars and expanding wars. So the Middle East is, 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 is worse off than it was uh, four years ago. So U.S. disengagement and growing Iranian influence are the two things I heard. Um, but, but back to your question on, on who they were talking about when they said, is oh, yeah, it okay. Iran or is it Shia? It's Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps proxies. It's the Shia militias that Iran hmm. controls. Uh, there are Shia nationalists in Iraq that are completely against the militias. But they did join the Hashid al-Shabi because Sistani asked them to. These are, these are Iraqis that wanted to avenge a massacre, you know, great, great people that wanted to do something. But they fall in under a command and control apparatus that is directed by the IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. So whether you're a volunteer that has principled, noble reasons to go do something, you still fall under this construct. And it is alienating as can be if you're a Sunni military-age male in Iraq wondering why the U.S. is now providing air cover to Shia militias uh, now when during the war 
we attacked both Shia militias and Al-Qaeda, providing that space for Sunni nationalists, Shia nationalists, come together, have a political accommodation that stabilized Iraq for, for, for almost two years, from 2008 to 2010. Uh, and I want to just follow up on, on, on my description of why sure. the Shia militias were opposed to this U.S. package coming in. It's because when Secretary Carter announced it, he said, a specialized expeditionary force. They knew what that meant. That means Joint Special Operations Command assets, the same assets that rolled up Case Kazali, Laith Kazali, Doc Duke, made Mohandas stay in Iran, and kept Soleimani out of Iraq. Now, all of these individuals are, are leading Arbaeen parades and all over, all over the country, uh, um, basically capitalizing on any, any victory, taking credit for, for Iraqi army or Iraqi security force victories, even though they're heavily infiltrated with Barakor and Jaysh al-Mehdi uh, individuals. The Iraqi militias are leaving the Iraqi army to join the militias they never left. And that's one of the biggest problems with this whole thing. 90,000 Sunnis, uh, to include Kurds, are no longer in the Iraqi security forces. We don't need to train a new force. Everybody talks about, well, the, the, the army we trained failed in Mosul. Uh, that was the army Maliki replaced with his loyalists that failed in Mosul. We don't need to train a new force. We simply need to say, I mean, if I was king for a day, I would say the U.S. will suspend all operations in Iraq in support of Shia units and Shia militias until Prime Minister Abadi brings back the 90,000 Sunnis that used to be in the Iraqi army and the Iraqi security forces to help fight ISIS and be part of Iraq's future. And I think that's something I mean, look, you, you don't need to be king for a day. <laughs> Let's say why, uh, that would that, be great, but yeah, I yeah. want you to use that power for other things. Roger. As well. <laughs> why, but why does the administration not do this? Why doesn't the administration, like, look, uh, th this is untenable? Simple answer, they don't want to. Um, there's a slow why? burn. Why? What are they concerned There's a about slow burn it? strategy in, in the White House. Uh, I had some sobering news uh, this summer from a, from a former a boss of mine who had met with the White House on building the Sunni force. And the answer was, we're, we're not going to do it. We have a slow burn strategy to just get, get out of office and leave this to the next president. So basically saying, we're not going to do anything for the next 15 months. You mean he was actually told months. this? He was told that. Uh, and that was, that was 16 months ago. I don't know that we've seen a lot change. We've added 50 special operators to Syria. And we just got turned down by trying to add this special operations package to help a body deal with, with ISIS in Iraq. Uh, we're not boots on the ground. We're, we're not looking at doing that, but we need to. I mean, the White House isn't looking at doing that, but we need to. Well, Mike, I'm sorry if I can ask you. Yeah. The difference between boots on the ground and what you said, you were told that the administration said we're using a slow burn strategy and we're not going to... We're not going to tell the government in Baghdad, this is what you have to do, and we want the... Cause that, right, it's not about putting Americans on the ground in Iraq. It's saying, like, if you want our help, if you want this, if you want that, we need these Sunnis back in the, uh, in the security. I, I, would, I would actually say we shouldn't put any more U.S. troops on the ground in Iraq until we address the Iranian influence with Baghdad, because it's just simply putting them in harm's way when they partner with a force that is predominantly Shia. One of the biggest issues with our, our training uh, effort in Iraq is uh, we had the opportunity to go down to Fort Bragg and talk to some deploying soldiers that are currently there now training the Iraqis, and we had a room of about 200 people. We asked the room, how many of you have been to Iraq before? 
15% uh, of the hands went up. We already have a generational gap. We ended combat operations in Iraq in June of 2009. So anybody under the rank of major or, or staff sergeant hasn't had combat experience in Iraq. Uh, the intelligence community has suffered the same, the same uh, drain, brain drain, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, these, are, these are great Americans doing work in Iraq. They just don't know who they're working with. Uh, there's, there's some retired intelligence guys in here that know the Iraqi army very well and know the militias. The intelligence community itself, the majority of people that were experts on Iraq during the surge and during these issues are no longer working in Iraq. Uh, you saw the CINCOM problem with the disparity between what the Iraq team was saying, what's going on with ISIS, mm. and what CINCOM leadership was saying. You have your yeah, expert class, your warrior class, which was mentioned in the debates the other night, are now graybeards, retired, no longer in the military. The intelligence community is suffering the same thing. So you have these varying assessments on who the enemy is. We keep allowing ISIS to tell us who they are, and we put it out. We should be finding out who ISIS is and how to exploit it. That's one of the biggest problems I see. Interesting. And one, of the, one of the dynamics, this, this is what happens when you're a Sunni military-age male and you go to the, the base uh, just, just to the east of Ramadi to be trained by Americans. <clears throat> the outer ring security is Badr Corps militia that look at you as you come in. The inner ring are, are Baghdad selected trainees for the Americans who already have their arms around an American NCO. They've already, they've already won each other over because it's, it's this simple. Do you want to fight ISIS? Yes. This bomb. <laughs> Boom, we're good. Right? And that's what it is. So, so the, the Sunni military age male comes in and he's like, oh, what did I just get myself into? Because the Shia militia guy's already, already got his arm around him saying, these are my guys. And all I got to do is say, you're an ISIS collaborator. It, it, it is a, a training effort Syrians didn't want to join. It's a training effort Sunnis don't want to join because they do, they do not see a commitment by the United States to be serious about the growing influence of Iran in Syria and Iraq. And that was a constant threat. That was the main thing. Hossein, yeah, I have two yeah, quick the... points before uh, okay. uh, talking about the policy issue. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, first of all, uh, the air cover that we're giving to the Shia militias uh, the Shia propaganda has it that we're we're totally supporting ISIS. Yes. There's a, the, 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 no one is is grateful. No, no one is thankful about what we're doing. Right. Uh, that's the best part of it. Uh, second, um, the the generational gap, which is interesting that you're saying it. Uh, in the tribal world, uh, they prefer personal uh, uh, relations. So, for instance, if you go to tribes now, they would say send us David Petraeus. Even if the guy is a university professor now, they don't care. So this really counts. And what Michael is saying makes sense because not only uh, the, the American personnel is new in Iraq, they also have no established connect, personal connections with, uh, with these guys. Now, uh, back to the policy <coughs> issue. Uh, how do uh, our allies, especially in, in the Gulf, yeah, right, just one of them look, look, at, right. look at our policy? I think the... the arrived at, at a conclusion that uh, this administration is so very incompetent that, you know, they can't bet on anything that they will do. Like, it, look, even the, the cook of bin Laden who swore on his life that he was only a cook and a driver and released it from Guantanamo, and now he's leading AQAP, the Al-Qaeda in American Peninsula and Yemen. So that's how incompetent things can get in this country. And, and of course, Bowie Bergdahl and, you know, the swap for the five Taliban leaders and so all these things pile up. And, and if you're a Saudi uh, desk officer on Syria and you're trying to decipher the American position on Assad, then good luck. 
Because one day there's a red line, the other day he should leave, the third day, no, he can stay, and then and so on and so forth. If if I mean if you live in Washington or if you live overseas and you look at, at the foreign policy, you will see something that's really confused and people who don't know what they're doing. And and you know, and, and these people are asking questions and interesting that probably this happened to Michael too, because they think we know. And when we show up, they look at us and they start questioning us. And like, you know, we don't know like you. Okay, let, let me let me make a, 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 let me play devil's advocate against both you guys for a second. Okay, so we're talking to the Saudi desk officers, and I say, no, actually, we have a very clear, coherent um, Middle East strategy. And at the centerpiece, the centerpiece is the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. We're going to make a, a we're going to have a nuclear uh, weapons agreement with the Iranians. And part of the importance of that is. It's going to slow them down a little bit, not that much. But the most important thing is that this document represents regional realignment. We want to be able to balance off the Iranians uh, with the Saudis, who we admit are our allies, and the Israelis are our allies as well. But we need to bring the Iranians in from, we need to bring them into the international community. And without that, the region's going to look like a mess, and it's better for American interests. I mean, I think that is, and, and the, that is how the administration would argue a large part of this. What do, what does the Saudi desk officer, or what does the, what does the Saudi foreign policy establishment say? I mean, because that argument has been made, right? And yeah, but that's correct. But I mean, in their mind, it's it's not about one treaty or one statement. It's just about six or seven years of just saying things, that, and then the opposite happens. You know, when you don't arm the Syrian rebels for fear that, that you will get Islamic radicals, and then you get Islamic radicals anyway, then that's your failed, you know. Right. You did the, the, the wrong thing. And, you know, when you, like we said, when, when, you, when you release that cook and the cook is leading AQAP, you did the, the, the right. wrong thing. And, and, and so on and so forth. It, almost everything that this administration predicted will happen the opposite happened, the exact opposite happened. And until now, there's nothing has moved in the direction of, of whatever they think is, is Sunni. So the, ah. the, the Iraqi Sunnis have been on the run for five, six years since the U.S. withdrew from Iraq. Uh, the, the Sunnis in Lebanon have taken a beating. The Sunnis of Syria are being killed. Turkey is being pressured all the time. Uh, you know, so, so you name it. Right. So, there's why why aren't they why aren't they matter actually right I mean and Mike I'm going to ask you the same question right. if we if we do believe if we look at the region and say well this administration has actually tilted against the Sunnis certainly certainly in the center of the Middle East in Syria and Iraq so why aren't the why aren't the Sunnis actually matter right we know that there's uh, you guys are describing dissatisfaction confusion. But it's surprising, right? We don't hear the Saudis. The Saudis will scream sometimes, and other people, you know, other people will scream. Why aren't the Sunnis making more noise even? Or are they, and we're just not hearing it? Well, I think, uh, you know, let's talk about uh, the, the different branches of Sunnis here. Uh, you have one group of Sunni that's really mad and blowing themselves up and joining ISIS. Okay, you're right. So that's that that, that group is making yeah. noise. You're right. Okay. There's, there's right. The, the more sane brand of Sunnis, which which conceives of itself as a government. That's the Saudi government. And the Saudi mm -hmm. government looks at its uh, uh, relations with Washington, and, and they see 
50, 60, or 70 years of, of alliance, and they think whatever is happening now with this administration is probably only a hiccup that will go away when, when things change. So, so you have more than one branch of Sunnis that's, that's, that's acting. But they're really mad. I mean, the king did, did not show up at Camp David. Right. And, and okay, that's, right. that's I mean, he, he doesn't have to shout, but, you know, that, that is a stance that right. he took. And, and you see uh, the, the more neutral countries like Kuwait. You know, Kuwait is, you know, uh, uh, they visited, uh, the, the, emir, the, the Kuwaiti emir visited Moscow. He's visited Tehran. He's announced investments in, uh, in, in both countries. It shows that even neutral countries are hedging and on, have stopped betting on the United States. Maybe partially because what Michael is saying, because of this, this engagement, but also because it, it seems that these guys never say anything that happens. Mike, did you want to? Um, Sunni regional partners uh, are looking to us and, and basically asking us why. We, we, we want them to do more, but they're asking us, right. why, are, why are you doing more? Why aren't you committed to this? Uh, the only way to defeat ISIS is, is, is to clear and hold territory. We can't do it with Americans. They can't do it with Saudis. They can't do it with Egyptians. They can't do it with Jordanians. They need to do it with Iraqis, and they need to do it with Syrians. But the Sunni male military-aged population in Syria is leaving. Even ISIS in Ahram al-Sham can't keep them to, uh, uh, Sham, yes, yeah, yes, sure, can't, yeah. can't keep them to stay. Ahram al-Sham put up a billboard saying, please, please don't leave. Stay here. Well, and what, what has to happen to stop them from leaving? Well, the passing comment was, you can't defend us, you can't defend against Russian airstrikes, we're out of here. Uh, you know. So do you, oh, this is interesting. So do you think that, um, question for both of you, do you think that the Russian escalation is a large reason for the, for the refugee crisis as it's, well? It's the one thing we didn't see. Everybody talked about the Iran deal, oh. the JCPOA. We talked yeah. about, okay, Iran's going to get $150 million, uh, billion dollars, uh, Qasem Soleimani's going to be able to travel everywhere, you're going to be able to fund Hezbollah with $250 million a year. Yeah. What's more capable? Uh, what's a more capable force? A terrorist army for two hundred fifty thousand or two hundred fifty million dollars a year, or an F sixteen for one hundred fifty six million dollars a year? A terrorist army is. Mm -hmm. So, we we anticipated what, what Iran would do. We did not anticipate that Russia would act as Iran's guarantor, that this alliance would take take hold. Russia, Iran, and ISIS see the battlefield as one. Iran sees Iraq and Syria as one battlefield. ISIS sees it as one battlefield, mm. and the Russians see it as one battlefield. Yes, they haven't started conducting airstrikes in Iraq yet, but they have a targeting cell in Baghdad that has Iranian and Syrian officers in it, and they are conducting, or they're writing target packets. They're also asking about the positions of U.S. military and what the U.S. military capabilities are in both countries, because these are, after all, adversaries over the last over the last 30 years so we did not see the russia huh. thing coming so when we talk about the sunnis of the northern middle east losing hope uh it started with u.s inaction in 2012 when it was an era spring event where syrians simply wanted assad they weren't even asking for him to leave at that point they were just saying can you just do more and then it, it de-escalated it turned into different things or devolved um we didn't do anything to them. So, so you saw some hope. The U.S. will do something with a red line. No, nothing happened. Then you saw, you know, Mike, Mike Morell gave a, an interesting answer. He said, okay, this is how difficult Syria is. One day Assad's attacking ISIS. Is he good or is he bad? 
One day, free Syrian rebels are working with ISIS against Assad. Are they good or are they bad? One day, ISIS is, is fighting Kurds, uh, and the Turks are bombing the Kurds and ISIS. Who's good, who's bad? It's all these different, different groups at any given time. Uh, somebody could be on the right side of a position and the wrong side on the same day, 10, 10 different times. So Russia is a huge part of this. Russia is Iran's guarantor. Uh, Iran is emboldened post-Iran deal. Post-Iran deal, Iran's influence has grown uh, in Iraq and Syria. And it's when the, when the U.S. says that Russia and Iran will get bogged down in Syria, they're, they're conflating what they do with what we do. We go into these countries to fix them. We go in these countries to be a third-party guarantor to make all sides work together. They go in these countries to win certain areas that are strategic mm -hmm. to them. They go in with a fractured state policy that allows them to stay. Russia's not going to get bogged down in a Vietnam, Afghanistan type event. They just want that, those, those basing rights and they want a friendly uh, leader in charge of that country that will allow Russia to continue to do things. And Iran's so concerned about what you talked about earlier, uh, the, the Shia Crescent maintaining that, making sure that they're able to keep that in place with, uh, with different groups like you mentioned as well. I, I just want, I, yeah, I sure, just want sure, to stick sure. with, with Russia for a second. I want to yeah. come back to a more general overview in a second. But I was saying if you can talk about like what the, I mean, both the uh, generally the Russian position in Syria and what, what they're saying in the Gulf about this. And also like what, actually where exactly Gulf-Russia relations are right now. I mean, I know that at different moments, you know, there have been, uh, I, mean, I, I mean, I think both uh, weapons purchases and, and, and different diplomatic coordination. So if you can describe that a bit. Uh, well, I, I don't think they have a fixed position on Putin. Sometimes, because sometimes Putin tried to uh, act as the guy who can sponsor anyone who's disenfranchised from, from Washington and Obama. So, you know, he, right. he makes friends with, uh, with Gulf leaders, even with Bibi Netanyahu. Or, so that's, mm. that's one side. He, uh, Putin tries to offer himself as the alternative in the age when uh, American power is retreating. So, and and the, the, the Gulf countries are happy to look for other sponsors of the region if the United States is not willing mm. to play that role. But on the other hand, uh, they have some sort of tension and competition. Uh, they are competing over uh, the oil market because you know both mm. Russia and Saudi Arabia being the biggest oil producers and exporters in the world. So uh, there's some sort of tension there. Uh, they do not trust Russia in the same way that they trust the United States. And uh, they know that things with, with Russia are just uh, tentative and personal. And now you have Putin, you have, maybe you have good relations for now. Somebody else comes and things might change, whereas you know, the United States is more institutional, right. the, the alliance uh, between the two. So uh, I don't think they're resolved with the, on their position with, with Putin. They've been trying to lobby him all the time. They even promised to uh, do whatever is in his interest because if they start cutting oil production, the prices might go up and this might help the, the, the Russian economy. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, what I heard is that they tried to uh, promise Putin a few uh, uh, things or a few policies that, are, that can be interesting for him. And they always like heard trying to cut production, or? Such, such as oil uh, issues or you know other issues, and they, they even tried to play, which which I think Washington tried to to do that too. They tried to play 
on whatever daylight between uh, Russia and Iran. They said, listen, you know, we have nothing against you. It's between us and Iran. Let's <coughs> stay friends. Right. So it's it's. Wait, a, you mean you mean the the Gulf? The Gulf, guys. yes. Okay. Yeah. So right. they said, you know, this it, this is not about you. This does not concern you. Let's. Can stay I just ask you very quickly to add, to talk about the um, talk about this uh, so-called um, difference between the Russian and the Iranian position on uh, the on, on on Syria, right? Because we hear a lot. We hear a lot. I think some of it's coming from the White House. How there's a uh, how there's already dissension between the two players. What do you make of that? Uh, well, it seems that uh, the Iranians are obviously much more invested in the whole region than Russia. So the Iranians have assets in, in Lebanon, Iraq, and now Syria, and these assets mm. go back decades. Whereas Russia is sort of a new player, and they look at least to, to the Gulf capitals, probably to Washington, it looks that as if Russia can dispose of Assad if given the, the right price. And uh, I think that's, you know, that's, the, that's the common assessment between Washington and the Gulf countries. But you know, it, it doesn't look like it. I they think, believe uh, that in the Gulf too? They, they, no, I mean, they think they can, you know, they, don't, they don't look at them as one and the same. You know, the conflict mm. with Iran is old and it has the Sunni Shia dimension. And, you know, and these countries are, are here to stay. You know, no one is leaving. But mm. Russia is just like, you know, they're like the guest who shows up for, you know, for a few mm. rounds of bombing. And then <laughs> after that, you know, they want something to come out of it. But, but Iran is, is there to stay. Saudi Arabia right. is there to stay. And, you know, their, their conflict is a much right. longer one. And I think that uh, uh, they believe that now is the time for them to, uh, to reinforce the, the moderate Syrian opposition that's fighting inside Syria because they think so far the the Russian campaign that started on, on September the 30th is not going well. And even mm. though Iranians have promised to, uh, to, to furnish all the ground troops, they, they've only uh, won back like 0.4% of the land. So, so the Saudis are now thinking whatever does not kill you only makes you stronger. So now that they've, you know, they've, uh, the, the Syrian opposition has withered the first huh. uh, uh, storm, now they can counteract. But like Michael is saying, it's just the, Syrian, the, the, the Russians are just sowing destruction. Right. There's no war. They're just, you know, destroying everything. Right. So until that stops, I mean, you know, uh, no one knows how these guys will behave. The, I, the I, I'm going to open it up for questions in a couple of minutes. But beforehand, I want to ask you both. Um, so let's assume... I think this is actually the case, that this White House's uh, regional policy is not going to change within the next, uh, within the next year. Um, what are the kinds of things that the next will be on the next administration's plate when it comes to Syria, when it comes to Iraq, when it comes to the Gulf? Um, why, don't you, why don't you just go through quickly some of the things that will be on that will that will be up for discussion, and uh, the different things that that the next administration should be doing to address those issues. Mike, if you want to start, yeah, sure. Then we'll go down. Oh. Over the next 13 months, if things stay the way they are, you're likely to see an additional 50,000 casualties in Syria and another one to two million refugees if nothing changes. Uh, just based on what you said about what Russia does. Russia does aerial denial. They, they blow up neighborhoods and towns. 
the U.S. blows up an individual or a building or a vehicle. Uh, Russia will blow up the whole city block. Uh, Iran is actually built, uh, Russia's helping build an airfield in Syria. Iran will start conducting bombing raids in Syria as well. They use crude weapons, uh, area, area denial weapons, uh, carp, you know, what Ted Cruz said the other day about carpet bombing, that's actually what the Russians and the Iranians do. The U.S. doesn't do that. They do surgical strikes, unless you're in the hills of Tora Bora and your name is Osama bin Laden. Um, the, thing, the thing that I see in Syria is, is, is a loss of a country over the next 13 months if nothing happens. Some people say you can't put it together now, but it's becoming more and more uh, difficult to even develop a U.S. strategy the more we allow Russia and Iran to entrench. Uh, with Iraq, the Shia militias, the force that Baghdad's building is not a force to retake uh, Sunni areas, to clear ISIS, to hold territories. This force looks like it's built to take back infrastructure and key strategic cities, one of those being Kirkuk. And that's what the Peshmerga are really worried about right now. What the Kurds are worried about is the growing uh, primacy of these militias, like you talked about, the Iran model, uh, to where the Shia militias become stronger than the government. Uh, and they have designs on Kirkuk. They have designs on infrastructure. I see Mosul staying in the hands of ISIS, even though it has 4,000 fighters. And salary for an ISIS fighter last year was 500 bucks a month, a car and a cell phone, paid on time every month. Now the salary for an ISIS fighter in Mosul is $50 a month, and you're three months behind. So they're running out of things to do, but it's an easy fight if Baghdad actually built the force. So I see ISIS staying in Mosul, and I see ISIS regaining territory in uh, Tikrit. You mean over the next Diyala. year? Well, the That's next what, year, okay. because we're not doing anything, and all we're doing is, is alienating this force. But, but like we didn't see Russia come in with the Iran deal, we may not see um, the other Iraqi insurgent groups start stepping mm. up. If mm. ISIS became a secular nationalist movement tomorrow, it would swell to 100,000. If ISIS said we're now the voice of the Sunni oppressed, they would swell to 100,000. Yeah. And then keeping it from growing further would be its lack of an ability to sustain it or to pay for it. So yeah. I see continued destabilization. I also see Iran walking away from the Iran deal over the next 13 months. And that gives this administration and the next administration leverage to say, okay, enough is enough with this, this rapprochement with Iran. It's not working. It's we not going to happen something. now. Right. I mean, well, I, I don't believe it's going to happen now. Over the next 13 months, people. No, say no, no, no. But I mean, I don't believe this administration is going to walk away and say, "Well, we really." Well, the administration doesn't need to walk away. Right. Iran's going to walk away, leaving the administration holding the bag. Yeah, holding the bag. Right. That's that's the intent, in my huh. biased view. Okay, so let's say <laughs> let's just it's getting it's get, going to get worse. Um, the region is going to get worse. So, okay, let me ask something specific what, that we talked about before. Is it still possible to establish a no-fly zone or a buffer zone in Syria which would uh, help stem the refugee, the flood of refugees, and would save thousands of lives from the depredations of uh, Assad and his allies in Syria? Is that still possible now with Russia, with Russia in Syria, it, with Russian planes, or what? It, it is. It just requires, I mean, when... when Turkey shot down a Russian jet. Everybody was surprised that they shot down a Russian aircraft violating its airspace. No-fly zones mean no-fly zones. Uh, uh, a safe zone means a safe zone. So when, when you ask a presidential candidate, would you actually enforce a no-fly zone, and they say yes, and everybody asks, acts shocked, 
That's a problem. Yeah, you, we, the mili U.S. military is, is far more advanced than the Russian military. You could establish a no-fly zone. You can est establish safe zones. And what Putin respects is somebody who does what they say they're going to do. Putin may not have liked what Erdogan did, but he sure as hell respects what he did. Uh, he thought that because the U.S. allowed Russia to bomb U.S.-trained rebels, that because Turkey was part of this U.S.-led coalition, they would follow suit and allow Russia to do these things. He found out that's not the case. He needs to find out that if we do establish a no-fly zone or a buffer zone, we would mean to enforce it. Doesn't mean we've got to shoot down a Russian aircraft. It just right. means okay. it just means that we do no, something. No, that's important because obviously this is going to be part of the. I mean, I think that all three of us, and I'm sure many of you in the audience, are of the opinion that uh, the crisis that we see in the center of the region that's going to continue to be uh, an important issue. And I think that the no-fly zone and buffer zone that right. that that is something that should come back up again. But I mean, this administration has used the Russian uh, escalation to say, "Well, we told you." It was dangerous. Now it's really dangerous, so we can't do it. Um, I'm just going to ask Hossein to go quickly as well, so we have, sure. we have time for a couple questions. Thank you, Mike. Thanks. Yeah, well, my closing remarks before questions uh, would be this. Uh, I think nothing uh, helps ISIS to grow more than when, when America or the West act in such a way that we don't understand the region and we don't understand the conflict or the, or the Shia-Sunni conflict. I think the, the president has been so many times on the record saying the Shia-Sunni conflict is something we do not understand and we better not touch. I think this is the, the worst position that America can take. Uh, that's not true. We understand these people. We understand we should understand the, the different nuances, the different Sunnis and different Shia, and we should reward the friends and stand next to them. And we should uh, punish the enemies and there should be some sort of guiding policy on how to do this. But just saying, you know, we don't understand, or when uh, a former chief of staff, uh, General Dempsey, said, this is Al-Qaeda fighting Hezbollah, why do we care? I think this mm. is bad because the longer this war goes on, the more terrorists it will produce. The coming generation will be a generation of, of Al-Qaeda and, and its equivalents from the Shia side. So the, the, the worst part is to, is to uh, live off, the, the, off of the hangover from Iraq. Okay, Iraq oh, okay. Was, was a big headache and a hangover, but let's get done with it already. Let's get back to starting to, start to understanding the region and, and, and differentiating between people and, and, you know, no nation building, granted, but just to understand mm. things to, to come up with better policy than the ones <clears throat> that we have. I mean, is there anything specifically you would say about Syria or Iraq right now? Well, and, and or are there any particular... In, in terms of, of Syria and Iraq, and of course we're talking about these failed states, because now at, at this point it's in, in everyone's interest to keep the states, even the enemy states, sort of intact. You know, even if we don't like them, let's just keep them because you know, things are you know, not as messy. But, but we're, when we're talking about failed states like Iraq and Syria and Lebanon, when there's no central government that we can rely on and deal with, then we have to understand what's going on and pick the friends and pick the enemies mm -hmm. and, and act accordingly. And we're not doing that. We're just taking sides for no obvious reason. And, 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 and what we're doing is that we're just making the mess messier. Mm -hmm. Okay, let me, let me be very specific. Almost a speed round question. Um, when the next administration comes to office, we see lots of conversation right now 
uh, on both sides, Democrats and Republicans, with the, uh, <clears throat> with the election campaign starting to heat up a bit. And there are some candidates who say that, oh, actually, we're much better off with, uh, with Assad than because who knows what comes next, who knows who follows him, what, what's, what's... Should the next administration try to find a way to work with Assad and empower him or topple him? If I can put it that bluntly. Again, it's speed round, so very quick. Okay, all right, right, right. Um, ISIS thrives because Assad is in position. Everybody goes to Syria, goes there to fight Assad, and they get sent to different areas. So Assad himself has to go. What survives from his government, if that's something we can work with, a Mubarak Sisi type thing or a Medvedev Putin type arrangement, something. But Assad, the strategy for the U.S. to get Sunni buy-in has to be Assad has to go. And uh, I, I totally agree with Michael. I think Assad is part of the problem and we should push him out and try to come up with a new and more creative solution. There's no way a minority of 2 million Alawites can beat back 16 million Sunnis back into the bottle and, and force them not to flee to Europe or not to right. you know, go commit terrorist <coughs> acts anywhere else in the world. Right. Um, great. Uh, now let's see if, we have, if there's any questions. Um, we have a, a, a microphone, so let's get the microphone. If you can come up here, this gentleman in the <coughs> third row here, all the way at the end, if you can stand up. I think that's a tweed jacket, but I can't see. <laughs> it is. <laughs> uh, thank you both for being here. I'm Russ Reed of The Daily Caller. Um, news came out this morning uh, that there's been some already some splintering of the Saudi coalition that's been created of 34 nations to fight ISIS. Uh, do you all think that this uh, coalition has any future? Uh, why or why not? Do, do you want to? Uh, sure. Uh, well, uh, one thing about this coalition is because people look at it, uh, looked at it as if it was something that, uh, that, that is going to uh, form a joint army and fly fighter jets. That was um, not what they meant. Um, what they meant was, was that these countries pledged to support each other in fighting domestic terrorism. And I think that, you know, that, that was, you know, because that was being discussed at the time I was here. And they were thinking, okay, Nigeria needs to fight Boko Haram. So we, as Saudi Arabia, maybe we can help. You know, we can get some uh, diplomatic contacts or maybe send some funds, which is, you know, uh, uh, the, the easiest Saudi Arabia can do at this point. Or, so, so many things. Uh, for example, in Lebanon, uh, Saudi Arabia has helped the Lebanese army immensely. They, they, they paid over $4 billion over the past 18 months to arm the Lebanese army. And the wisdom behind arming the Lebanese army is that once it's strong, it can take on all of the uh, organizations that are classified as terrorists, whether it's ISIS or even Hezbollah. So I think that's the Saudi thinking. And I don't think they thought of, okay, Benin is going to send like two F-16s to bomb ISIS. All right. Um, gentlemen in the uh, fourth row, with the blue tie, that I know is blue. Yeah. Thank you so much. I'm a member of a UNESCO task force. Uh, I have two questions. One, what are the two points you would include in the counter-narrative? Uh, we, we don't have counter-narrative to ISIS narrative today. And it happened in French National and in Europe. We, the Europeans are scared about it. Do, are we ready? And what would you include in two points in the... ISIS uh, counter-narrative. Second, what would be the implication of helping massively 
YPG, which is the only group which I think they had quite a few successes in fighting ISIS. Thank you. Uh, let's start with the, let's start with the first question about the you were talking about a counter narrative yep. to ISIS. Yep. Is that okay? So let, let's let's, let's start. Could you all take the counter narrative? Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. You want to go with this? Go ahead. Go ahead. We can do both. Real quick, uh, ISIS. ISIS loses territory every time it faces a capable force willing to fight for that territory, such as the YPG, such as the Peshmerga, such as the Shia militias in Tikrit. They lose every time they face an enemy that wants to be there. That's why they're able to hold on to Mosul and Ramadi. The, other, the second part of that is the apocalyptic wing of ISIS that thinks Dabiq is the place where everybody's supposed to come is losing the support of the pragmatic element that actually formed ISIS to begin with the Saddam faith campaign. So the Ba'athists are exiting ISIS because they initially hijacked it to regain territory and have a Sunni return to power in Baghdad and maybe brought Assyria. Um, the apocalyptic wing messed up when they brought down the Russian aircraft and when they did the Paris attacks because that invites more people to the fight. When you lose territory, you lose your narrative that you are this formidable terrorist army that is here to stay. I'll, I'll, I'll do the YPG oh, after sorry. if you want to. No, 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 okay. no, no, you answer this too. Okay. Both of you guys no, answer I'll, the narrative. I'll also take the, the narrative uh, issue yeah, first. Yeah, right. uh, uh, ISIS is not as Islamic as it says. Uh, they just censored the satellite dishes and the internet. And to me, this sounds like Saddam 1999, Iraq 1999. Hmm. So uh, they're, they're mostly brutal. And by the That's way, the, the, biggest, uh, the biggest number of, of foreign fighters who join ISIS come from Tunisia, which is the most secular country in the Arab world. So, uh, I mean, the whole thing that, that ISIS is very Islamic, I, I think mm. it's more Saddam brutal than, than act, actually Islamic. And, you know, sometimes they might try, uh, take Islamic. As, as to the counter, the narrative, you know, I know that the government of the United States is spending hundreds of millions of dollars. We have, maybe you know about that, we have a, um, a Congress-funded TV station, Al-Hurra, and it's sister radio, Radio Sawa. And these guys are just probably broadcasting songs but they're not part of countering any narrative. Mm. So we have assets, we, we're only not using them. Well, I mean, you worked at Al Hora, so yeah, you're yes, in I did. a position yeah, to really yeah, describe yes. the, both the problems and give recommendations. Well, yeah, so. yeah well, that, that was probably 10 years ago. What would, what would be your recommendation then to counter? I mean, I, I mean I'm, not, I'm not sure that ISIS has that powerful, or they have a powerful narrative, but I'm not sure how many people that appeals to. Um, well, well, I mean, as it stands, the descriptions of ISIS come either from friends or enemies. So it's either Iran that's putting everyone in the, in the category of terrorists, ISIS, Nusra, you know, and the Madras, or the ones who are, you know, uh, supporting ISIS, or even Saudi Arabia that's, you know, going against terrorism in the very classic sense. What we need is that some smart media that takes on ISIS, you know, that explain where did these guys come from? How come the whole leadership is the junior leadership of Saddam Hussein? You know, who are the foreign fighters? These, questions, these, these sober questions and answers do not come through uh, media stations like Al-Hurra. Al-Hurra, you know, unfortunately, is, looks like a bureaucracy that was, you know, some sort of, of pork uh, compromise inside of Congress, something, you know. Yeah. There's too much politics going behind it, but it's not justified why we spend so much money on something that's, that's totally irrelevant that we can really use in countering the, the narrative of ISIS. Right. I'll, I'll just answer. You also asked about YPG. You, you asked about YPG, right? I'll, I'll just say very quickly, YPG is something of a problematic issue, right? Because it's, uh, it's, uh, Turkish, uh, it's Turkish branch 
the PKK is a, is a, for, a foreign terrorist organization. And so I, I know that apparently the Kurds, those Kurdish institutions have had some success against ISIS, also with a lot of U.S. air support. Uh, I think that in some ways the conversation about Kurds in Washington has gotten a little confused. I think that it's not a, uh, as our friend and colleague Tony Bedran says, it's not a very useful analytical category to just say Kurds. There are many Kurds, right? You have the KRG. The KRG is pro-American, a very, very uh, excellent American ally. The PKK is a foreign terrorist organization. And so again, the YPG is problematic. And I would look at that. I would point at the White House's reliance on YPG and say, that's another place where the administration's foreign policy, Middle East policy, has gone off the rails. There is no doubt that Erdogan is a problematic uh, NATO member. No doubt about that. But the fact that we're taking sides against the NATO member, this is an outfit that is waging war against the NATO member and you know, responsible for, for tens of thousands of deaths in Turkey. It's very strange. So we should be very clear when we discuss the Kurdish, the Kurdish uh, issue, I think. Another question. The gentleman in the white shirt, I believe you had, a, you had your hand up. Yeah, Paul Davis. I, well, we're going to get back to the Kurds. <laughs> so, um, yesterday it was announced that Israel and Turkey are moving toward normalizing the relations. Um, in this instance, Israel um, has a problem with Hezbollah. Hezbollah right now is being supported by Russia and Iran, becoming a, a much better equipped and trained outfit at the end of the Syrian, whatever happens in Syria, they're going to return to Lebanon and go back after Israel. Turkey has a problem with Russia and Baghdad. Netanyahu has said openly that the Kurdish people deserve um, their own country. How is all of this going to fit into the fight against ISIS and the problems in the Middle East? I'm sorry, have you, have you just condensed it a bit? How is what going to fit into the fight against ISIS? Uh, a Kurdish Israel, homeland? Or Israel a and Turkey reestablishing... Um, Okay. normalizing relations uh, uh, yeah. and okay. having diametrically opposed. Why don't we take that? No, the, the viewpoints are not diametrically opposed. But why don't, we, why don't we take that question about, do you want to talk about sure, this? Sure, yeah. Turkey and Israel on, on the road and hopefully reestablishing relations. Do I think wanna... uh, Turkey has come to terms uh, about the issue of uh, Kurdish nationalism uh, to an extent, especially in northern Iraq, because uh, last week uh, Masoud Barazani was just hanging out with uh, President Erdogan. So uh, the, the two of them had chemistry. And, uh, and I think it's not uh, automatically a deal breaker when Israel says that uh, it supports uh, whatever Kurdish uh, uh, arrangement that they might have. So, uh, you know, when, when, when two parties, when two countries come together in an alliance, I think they still allow some sort of, of difference. They do not expect the, the you know, identical points of view. But I think what, what has been the main driver behind Turkey coming closer to Israel is if you, uh, if you, if you got to read the statement, the readout from uh, the phone call, phone call between President Obama and President Erdogan, and you will see that, that uh, Mr. Obama said that uh, the United States supports the right of Turkey to defend itself. That was you know, after the, the shooting down of the Russian jet. And this does not sound like, okay, we're coming to your rescue. This does not, this sounds like, okay, if you're going to fight uh, uh, Russia, we will be here cheering for you. 
Yeah, <laughs> it, it does not sound like we're here to, to and, and, and that to me drives Erdogan to look for friends, even if, if even those friends who say, you know, uh, independent Kurdistan. So, uh, you know, that's that's to my mind the, the driver behind this. Um, we have uh, this gentleman here in the white shirt. Thanks. Hi, uh, Sean Durns with, with a camera. My question is, what are some things that those on the Hill can do uh, to counter the influence and growing influence of the Rev Guards, of, either of now who? or 13 months forward? Of who? Uh, uh, people on the Hill, Congress, what can they do to counter the influence of the Rev Guards? The IRGC, you may right. say. Uh, yeah, okay, the Rev Guards, okay. Um, put sanctions back in place, uh, enforce existing sanctions. Iran's interpretation of the Iran deal is more important than our own. Iran views any enforcement of existing sanctions, any additional sanctions, uh, as a violation of the Iran deal. The Iran deal would hurt, hurt the Revolutionary Guard very much if it was to go away. They're still going to get the billions of dollars. They're going to get all that. But, but the thing is, what can the Hill do? Uh, the Hill can, can ask for the release of the Osama bin Laden documents that the White House hasn't allowed the intelligence community to go through. It shows a connection between Iran and al-Qaeda. The Hill can actually have states um, uh, have uh, put sanctions on American companies actually doing business with Iranian Revolutionary Guard-owned businesses in Iran. Uh, put a $3 trillion economy against Iran's economy to do that. Not, not to punish the Iranian people, remember. Um, this is supposed to moderate Iran, but it doesn't do that when you actually delist uh, Mohammad Reza Nakhdi, the besiege commander, who put down the Green Revolution when you actually uh, do these types of things. So the Hill has a, a great opportunity to, to have this administration tell us exactly who Iran is and do something about Iran when it comes to what its Revolutionary Guard Corps is doing in the Middle East, in North do you, Africa. Do you want to Just take a quick thing, I think, you know, maybe uh, the Hill, uh, the Congress can come up with a with an act that's, that's called the Loyalty to the U.S. Troops Fallen in Iraq Act, <laughs> wherein we just go after every general or fighter who, who helped kill 1,000 uh, of, of the 4,000 people. That's a very and good by point name, to keep that. And just, yeah, you know, yeah. keep the sanctions and go good. after them until further notice, because, you know, to my knowledge, the, the nuclear deal does not cover this particular thing. Right. Uh, that's very good. Uh, a question in back. Let's move to the back of the room now that we were in the front of the room. Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, my question is about the, the role of China in that region. Uh, to what extent do the panelists believe that the China, based on its both uh, business, na national business interest and the domestic concern over the stability, uh, would actually put the China, uh, especially Chinese military, into that region? And if that would be the case for China, uh, would China be closer to U.S. or would China listen? more to Russian and Iran, or would China uh, actually get more advice from Europe? I'm, I'm sorry, Europe? You're, you're really putting a lot in there. If you can just make it just one question, because you're, you're- Probably you're just the first look. one. Yeah. I, yeah what I, is okay, your observation Mike, on, you on China's relative? I'll, I'll start. When, when, when we went into the Iraq, when we started the Iraq war, a lot of people said we were going in for, for oil. We made a concerted effort not to be part of any of the oil after, after the invasion or after the Iraq war. China moved in everywhere. China has uh, secured oil rights in the south, in the predominantly Shia areas, great relationships with Baghdad. China could be a great asset to curb Iranian influence if they wanted to. 
So when we talk about this, this alliance between Iran and Russia, behind them, just like you said, they're cheerleading. You know, the U.S. would be uh, cheering for Erdogan if he actually had a, a conflict with Russia. China's applauding Russia and Iran. I believe that. Uh, I believe China actually has the economy to sustain what most people hope Iran and Russia will end up suffering in a quagmire in Syria and Iran. Uh, China's already secured oil rights with Iran ahead of the uh, nuke deal. They already have said they will trade advanced weapons for oil rights. That's already in the works. And there's even, thought, uh, even mention of Chinese advisors on the ground in Syria. Mm. So China plays a role. The U.S. has ceded leverage in the Middle East and North Africa. I don't know how we get leverage back with, with these, these main players. I don't know what else we can give up. I think we've already given up too much, and I don't know what else is left, to be honest with you. Yeah, Did I would add to that is that uh, one thing China really inspired President Obama not to, to, you know, to stop intervening in any part of, of the Middle East. But I think if I were China, I'd be worried. The longer Assad is in power, the longer Sunnis from around the world will, will join whoever is fighting Assad. And, and as, as we speak, we know that a, a big uh, chunk of foreign fighters come from regions that should worry China, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, Azerbe mm. uh, not Azerbaijan, I'm sorry, but, uh, you know, uh, and, and it might go as, as, as deep as the Uyghurs. So this stretch of, of human uh, people should be really worrying China if these guys start becoming militant and go and fight Assad. And, and as, as far as we know, China has helped Russia three or four times veto any Security Council uh, uh, move against Assad. So if I were China, I would probably throwing my weight behind whoever wants to solve this, which includes getting out Assad, and forget for a moment the whole idea that, you know, as sovereign government, you don't take them out or, or whatnot. I believe we have, a, we have a question here. One second, if you can just wait for the microphone. <laughs> Sorry to make you. No, I'm speaking to her. Good afternoon. Just wanted to thank you, first of all. This is a very informative presentation. Thanks. I'm I've learned more than I've ever expected. And, but I do want to ask you going forward with the implications of the political year coming up, what are some of the, the ways in which the next administration needs to fill in the blanks? Because you've expressed a, a basic picture, you've painted a picture of incompetency. You may have even used that word, or at least perceived incompetency. We have uh, one of our candidates is a former Secretary of State, so presumably has significant experience in these matters. So what should the next administration look like? Okay, I think, I think that'll be a good yeah. Good yeah. question to end it on. Mike, if you sure. would like to take, take that uh, The next administration needs to Thanks. ensure that it's not compartmentalizing. There, there's no compartmentalizing what's going on in the Middle East. There's not just ISIS. There's not just Iran. There's not just the Sunni regional allies. There's not Erdogan. There's not Putin. It's all connected, and it's all based on U.S. disengagement and the growing influence of, of uh, powers as they, as they fill a, a void left by the U.S. as it, as it disengages, as it, as it moves out. Um, there's tough talk from all the candidates on what they would do. But when I hear things like, well, I need to get into office to see what the Iran deal is first before I decide if I'm for it or against it, it's out there now. It, it's out there. You should already have a position on the Iran deal. You should already have a position on Assad. 
you should already have a position on ISIS. Uh, one thing that I don't think I, I, I finished was, we don't need to train a new force to fight ISIS. It already exists. We just simply need to reactivate it and put that in place. But I personally think we don't have 13 months to wait. These candidates need to start talking about things now. Hillary Clinton needs to oppose what President Obama is doing now. I think it's time to break. I think she has enough momentum in the Democrat uh, uh, position to be able to do these things now. We need to hear strong voices from these candidates on what they would do and not take out family members and carpet bomb, but actually win back our Sunni allies because they're the only ones that can defeat ISIS. Thank you, Mike. Hassan, if you would yes, like uh, What I would add is that uh, whatever the next president does, <clears throat> the administration has to, to know what they're doing. If, if this administration was big on disengaging and being on the sidelines, then it should have stayed on the sidelines. Giving interviews where you say that, that Iran goes back 2,000 years in terms of civilization where the Arabs are, you know, not very nice guys, that's not being on the sidelines. So this administration did not stick to the, to, to the ideas that it raised in the first place. So fine, disengage, okay, but just do it the proper way. Just make sure that, that you're being impartial, that everyone views you as impartial. And make sure that if you want to intervene, you have to to tilt back the balance in a way that's not, you know, because the, the, the U.S. position is, is so whimsical now. You can, you can, you can like, like Lee was saying, we're arming a terrorist group, but we're leaving out groups that are not terrorists, and no one knows why we're doing either way what we're doing. So just, you know, we have to, to be smart about the, these things. We have to stop saying that we're too dumb to understand this Sunni-Shia conflict. You know, this affects us eventually. If these guys keep on fighting, they will keep on establishing networks. They will keep on establishing funding sources. And after they train and establish networks and funding sources, guess who's their next target, if not the Shia or the Sunni, depending on which side you are. So in the long run, this will hurt Europe and it will hurt the United States. And just behaving as if, you know, uh, this will go away or, or giving nice press conferences saying, uh, uh, weaken and ultimately destroy and you know, all, all these nice statements, it cannot solve it. So um, I'm, just, you know, I'm just hoping the next president knows what they're talking about. And, and so far, I, unfortunately, I haven't seen any really good, you know, I, I mean, there are exceptions, of course, but, but we, we are still long, uh, a long way from, from being there. Thanks, Hussein. Uh, Hussein Abdul Hussein, Michael Pregent, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks thank to you. all of you for being here. Thanks. Happy holidays, and thanks to Hudson Institute. Thanks very much. See you all soon.